Okay, so we're going to be doing now our first 10-minute meditation on coping. Okay, so again, pen in hand, I think, is a good idea. Try to work with each question if you can. Um, again, I encourage us to maybe even open up our own meditations. Obviously, I sent it to you in an email, right? Just so you can move at your own pace. But of course, I'll share my screen. And uh, let's get going here. I'll give us 10 minutes.
And just a small piece of encouragement. We have a couple minutes left for the meditation. As you're doing this, maybe if, you know, I think this would be good for the conversation, um, write down a couple of the numbers for the questions that interest you or that you would like for me to elaborate on. And of course, I'd love to hear from your own perspective um, on the questions, but that's never mandatory, right? So at the very least, so I do think it's nice to have some questions we'd like to discuss as a group. Or again, if you want me to elaborate, um, feel free to have a short list of questions whenever we meditate, put them in the chat when we do our group discussion and uh, we'll, we'll return to them and we'll talk about them, all right? So we'll then take another minute or two to do this, then we'll shift to some bibliotherapy. I'll ask, you, I'll ask that you take a quick look at a couple short sections and we'll have our group discussion. Okay, so that's 10 minutes. So now we're going to shift our thinking. And again, we use the bibliotherapy, hopefully as a way to help us work on what we um, were considering with the meditations, right? So first we dialogue with ourselves. Now we kind of enter into a dialogue with a couple of philosophers, okay? Just give me one second here and I'll share my screen. And once again, we have numbers here. Feel free to collect which quotes you think are useful. Some you maybe agree with, some you disagree with. Again, maybe you would like for me to elaborate a bit on one or two of the quotes. So we're going to look ma mainly at number two, and then we'll spend a couple minutes also looking at number three. And one more quick reminder, right, when we're looking at the bibliotherapy, even when, you know, it's not necessarily at home and we have some more time, we're always looking for the what does it say, what does it mean, how can I apply it, why does it matter, right? So keep that lens in mind as we're uh, addressing the bibliotherapy for the next few minutes. Just a suggestion.
So let's say another two minutes or so on this. And again, I would love to see numbers in the chat, interpretations in regards to which quotes we would like to, uh, like to discuss. Okay, so let's talk about these ideas, right? So as we have the title of the chapter on coping, so mostly in this chapter, we're discussing the, the three main topics I would say are anxiety, let's say stress and worrying, right? So three of these things, I think we could argue they are very similar, although there are some differences and, and I think we'll get down to the heart of some of those differences. But these questions and these quotes, I think get us starting you know, into that, let's say into the mode through which we can actually alleviate a lot of the anxieties, worries, um, stresses, and also fears that we have, right? So let's get into some of what you all want to talk about because we have some great comments in the chat. Um, and Daniel, just to be clear, number four, you mean the quote or the question? I think we were looking at the quotes at that time, but I, 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 I want to make sure. 
All right, so I'll give you a minute to respond to that, Daniel. Um, but on that note, let's go to the questions um, because we have a point from Naya that I think is really interesting. So most of the questions, right, you're saying kind of gave you this sense that you could grapple with or let's say live with or, again, cope um, with things better. That's a beautiful point, right? The whole One of the main objectives of the whole kind of meditative thing we're doing here is to not only organize our thinking, right, but, but it's to shine a light on the thinking, right? So which is to say to a large extent that these moments of realization are like really what we're going for here right? The ideas that we then confront and deal with in the bibliotherapy should kind of give us the tools, the techniques to cultivate what we need to cultivate, right? So to cultivate, let's say, a greater sense of tranquility might be a good approach to today's thing, right? Questions like, how could I be less anxious? How could I be less stressed, right? These are questions that ancient philosophies, uh, various ancient philosophies or schools of ancient philosophy took really seriously, right? Some of what we're going to discuss the next couple of days will come from the Stoics, other kind of um, Epicurean standpoints will, will come to the forefront of our discussion. So, I mean, these ancient schools again, were schools. So people will go to these places like, you know, physical schools. Epictetus describes his school as a hospital for individuals who are pretty much suffering, right? Spiritually suffering. And back, you know, obviously ancient Greece preceded, you know, um, our modern conceptions of psychology. Nonetheless, they were trying to help people I think deal with a lot of stuff we deal with today um, from, again, anxiety, worry, uh, stress, anger, right? These are all things that we have to cope with. So we're going to be talking today a lot about, you know, that powerful realization. We can't fix, this is, I think, from Al Kindi, right? A wonderful quote. We can't cure the sickness for which we do not know the cause, right? So, you know, saying step one might be, oh, wow, I'm not, I could cope with things more effectively, which is to say I could be less anxious, for example. Well, that's a great moment. Now we work on through the questions, right? The questioning in the meditation itself is a technique, right? So again, the technique is the cup and then the water is the, is the concept. So we have the idea of meditation as today's cup, as we'll do it at each class for 10 minutes at least. And then the water today is you know anxiety, stress, worrying. Next week, it'll be happiness. Next week, it'll be confidence, right? So we have to keep in mind that, you know, to, to your point, Naya, there's power in meditating. There's power in organizing our thoughts. There's usefulness in taking these questions and then really examining ourselves, right? Not worrying about the book yet, which is to say the, the bibliotherapy, not worrying about other philosophers' opinions yet. But that time examining ourselves, our past, our images of the future, our understanding of ourselves now, our actions, our feelings, our thoughts, like that's a very good idea, right? And I, I sit and kind of will hopefully not repeat this too much, but I do think this is one of the main takeaways of the class that I hope you carry with you beyond the class. This is meaningful time that we spend in, in the meditation, right? And I appreciate you, you sharing that. Um, yeah, we have more people echoing that, right? And yeah, being dismissive is something we have to be on the lookout for, right? I think a lot of what we'll see, and I'm not sure if we'll get to this today or tomorrow, but Alain de Bouton and the School of Life, which I encourage all of you to go on YouTube. Um, a lot of our essays I'm taking right from their website. I've read a number of his books, and we have some quotes from his books in here and books from the School of Life as well. They are big on not dismissing things. We have a whole really cool essay about bears. We'll get into it a little bit later. Uh, if, again, if not today, tomorrow. Um, a whole essay on bears where it's like you can – well, that's, I'm not going to spoil it, right? Let me just say you need to sit with things 
major events in life, memories that, you, that you've held on to, and learn how to detail them, learn how to see them more clearly, learn how to leave them in the past, right? For example, today we're talking about anxiety. That is a future-driven emotion, right? We're gonna talk about the, the levels, I think, and how anxiety grows, right? For, you know, for one way of understanding it, we might think that anxiety, we start thinking about what is possible, Oh, it's a negative possibility. Okay, then we start elaborating on it, right? We start feeling now, kind of, you know, feeling in a way that's a little bit heightened. Then it goes from possible to probable. Okay, well, this it might happen. Well, this probably will happen. Then we can make it feel like it is certainly going to happen. We can even make ourselves, you know, feel as, as a result of this thinking, right? And maybe even our actions too can perpetuate this. We can make something that's not even happening feel like it is happening or that it has already happened, right? So anxiety is something that, once again, is towards the future. And it's something that we have to learn how to grapple with so it doesn't become overwhelming. Um, and we can, and this, is, this chapter, again, we're gonna get to a number of conversations. I'll hopefully highlight some very practical strategies in addition to what we just had a moment ago, which is kind of a, let's say a philosophical conversation about what is anxiety? Well, it's a future-driven negative emotion, right? It's you creating an imagined future that you then become emotionally, let's say, distraught over, right? So it's very much in the imagination. And we're going to have some quotes that I'll highlight that I that have really helped me. Um, I think they're from Seneca. Yeah, it's the first one I would like to mention during my brief lecture um, that is really just about imagination. So how do you have a better imagination? How do you deal with a negative imagination? Um, how do we take control of our daily lives and how do we integrate practices maybe that encourage us to imagine a future that is something that we are excited about? How do we deal with, again, flying thoughts or flaughts that may cause anxiety? Right. So we'll, we'll get into all that today. But the, the first initial point of the questions being something that's useful to enlighten us to the ways that we can improve and the ways that we in the moment might not be uh, thinking, feeling and acting in ways that are great. That's exactly what the point of the questions uh, is, right? So it's it's a great great comment. So thank you. Now let's get into some specifics here. I'm sorry for that. That was a little bit of a unnecessarily long opening remark there, but uh, let's see here. What do we have? I said we're going to go to the questions first. So give me a second here. Let me stop sharing this screen, and we'll go to the questions. All right, cool. So which one do we want to look at? Let me go back to the chat. Number two. All right. So Naya, would you like to elaborate at all on why number two stood out to you? Or would you like for me to kind of just jump in here? Am I sharing the right screen? Yeah, I am. Okay, great. So let's see, number two. Yeah, so number two is a big question, I think, right? Because that's obviously not super specific. And I think throughout the, the set of questions, we have some more specifics like disappointment, anger, pain, failure. These are all sort of general, let's say, quote unquote, negative emotions, right? Um, so I think number two, again, gives us kind of a general direction to consider. And with our responses, that word respond, to make it a little more detailed maybe, let's think about it in terms of how you respond with our thinking, feeling, and behaving, right? So I think one interesting part of this too is to examine our actions. Because I think actions are likely the easiest thing to examine. And when we, we think about actions, we could also think about speech in that context too, right? As you know, speaking as a form of taking action. Um, 
thoughts and feelings also we can examine, but I think at times, especially thoughts for me, at least get a little bit hectic and that takes more training, but we can really think about what we do. So an interesting concept might be, well, when I'm in a stressful situation, how do I behave? Do I do things that perpetuate the feeling of being stressed or being angry, right? I think this is really very lucid and clear to think about with, with anger, right? It's like a lot of times angry people stay angry because they act in ways that perpetuate the anger. They raise their voice. They, yeah, I'm stuck in traffic. I could start yelling and cursing in my car or I can feel stressed out and learn to stop myself and pause so I can stop the feeling from turning into an action. That action is going to fuel the feeling. It's rare that you, if you think angry, feel angry, get angry, then all of a sudden you're calm, right? And now there are situations maybe where we let it out, right? And then, okay, I'm calm after I release. Definitely the case in, in certain situations, right? But I think it might be interesting to consider how do we create like speed bumps between our thoughts, feelings, and actions so we don't get that, that negative, like let's say feedback loop, right? And I think this is even more interesting to consider maybe in the context of like talking to people. Two people yelling, nobody's listening, right? And even that at times, let's say, might be necessary. But ultimately, to have healthy relationships, right, we have to learn, I think, how to respond to negative emotions, especially if we love people, right, in a way that is controlled. If our objective is to continue to be in a loving relationship with somebody, we have to maybe work on our capacity to cope with our own emotions such that we don't escalate situations, right? So this idea of coping is both, as we have in the class a lot, right? It's both ethical and moral. It's about cultivating the self. So we could be have, you know, we could be having more pleasant inner dispositions, but also it's like, how do we act in the world? So we don't just create an angrier world for everybody. Right. Um, so again, two is, is pretty, pretty large in scope, I think. Um, yeah, so and now you bring up an interesting point too. This is another great part of these questions, I think, is like it asks you to maybe deal with things that you have been putting off, right? So the idea that being dismissive is the opposite of coping, I would, I would say at times being dismissive can actually help us cope because I think there are some thoughts, some feelings we have to learn how to dismiss. That actually sort of comes up in the, uh, in the essay about bears, right? We have to learn how to maybe ask questions of our feelings and then dismiss them. So being dismissive, I think, can be a part of coping. But being excessively dismissive, where we never sit down to actually address stuff, that's a problem, right? Because like you're saying, I think I may have already shared this sort of metaphor in, the, in this class, right? From uh, the book Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. It's an interesting book. I've been, I've been reading it. Um, it uh, talks about how if you don't sweep, he uses the example of a dojo, right? A place where you practice martial arts. And the idea is that you want to sweep the mats every day so you don't kind of get it, let's say like an accumulation of dirt, then it, it takes you longer to sweep it. And not only that, but you, you have a dirty dojo, right? Which is not respectful to the space. So it's sort of a, an analogy for how if we have practices of, let's say, addressing our small anxieties, they don't pile up. And then the unfortunate reality is, you know, we tend to notice things maybe when they've gone wrong, right? Whereas being vigilant, which is a great um, notion we're gonna confront in our on practice chapter, this idea of prosecate, right? If you're vigilant over your daily little, let's say little stresses and anxieties, they don't pile up and then you don't crash, 
right? So the idea of being a little bit vigilant, and let's maybe say this comes through discipline, among other virtues, I think, um, disciplined introspection is something that Epictetus suggests, right? So we can interpret that in a couple of ways. If you're disciplined about your introspection, to me, that means you're doing it with some frequency, such that it's going to prevent a problem, right? Um, to Naya's point. So I think coping, again, even now, this is such a cool point. It's like we're talking about not even necessarily coping with stress or sadness or disappointment or loss as these questions encourage us to consider these sort of, let's say, um, nuanced types of suffering, right? Because they're all a little bit different. And more than that, maybe we'll all stand things a little bit differently. So I try to provide different language to see what will resonate with each and every one of us to, the, you know, optimally, let's say. Um, but the idea too that like, just you need coping mechanisms and then the mechanisms deal with these specifics, right? So if you're being consistently dismissive of whatever it is, whether again, loss, pain, failure, conflict, whatever, um, it might make sense to start off with talking about, okay, well, what, what are your mechanisms, right? Um, so that, that's a great point, Naya, thank you. Let's see, any other questions we wanna discuss? For me, again, I like number two a lot because it's putting us a little bit in the driver's seat, right? It's at the very least maybe asking us to consider how we can control our responses to things, right? Negative emotions, negative situations, especially situations we could view as external things, right? So we can maybe think about the pain that the external world seemingly causes us and then the pain that we might just be generating within ourselves. And maybe, you know, is that a result of our own free will, or is it maybe a result of some internal psychology, subconscious, right? Something neurological, something environmental that we don't have all that much control over. So nonetheless, I think we need systems in place, um, as we've been saying, to examine these things. And does anybody have any, like maybe a concrete response to this? So even too, I think, you know, topographically, or like, let's say like our internal map of ourselves, right? For me, I know I generally respond to negative emotions. I'll get angry before I get sad. I don't really get sad that often. My default is angry or frustrated, let's say. Whereas I, I've seen people respond to the same or similar situations. They might be disappointed or um, sad. I, I tend to lean towards the anger, frustration side of things, right? And those are different emotions. Those are different thought, or like let's say different lines of thinking, right? Um, and what we get from number 10 to how do you deal with pain? Some of the suggestions we'll see in the bibliotherapy are like, okay, the Stoics especially ask us to try to make something useful out of our pain, right? Epictetus's, I think, interesting quote is, in pain, you will find strength, right? I think by that, he also means you'll find it if you look for it. So there's still for him this sort of very active approach to um, cultivating healthy reactions to externals. Right. I also think number six, uh, number 15, why do you usually become upset? So even that I think is very useful. We kind of learn about to use sort of a, a term in our, that's like, you know, kind of our modern understanding of this, right? We sort of learn what triggers us. Right. And when we learn what triggers us, well, that'll impact the way we view things, impact the way we move in certain situations. Right. Um, even uh, number, let's say 16. Um, I'm sorry, not 16. What was I going to do there? Um, how do you help others, right? How does that connect to coping? Right, maybe when we help others 
and we try to focus on decreasing the suffering of others, we get a sense of, of freedom from our own suffering. So that's more of a practical note as well, and we'll see that come up one more time. Uh, 17, I like a lot. Do you make lemonade out of lemons or lemons out of lemonade? So basically, right, kind of a weird idea, but ultimately asking us, do you make, do you actively try to see the silver lining in situations? And how much better could that make your life? Right, even in times of suffering, are you looking out for the beautiful things in your daily life? Right, are you, are you searching for the goodness? And it, it sort of revolves around this idea of, of uh, perspective. And I end with that one because I would like to turn to um, somebody called our attention to how number four, and Daniel, I'm thinking that you meant in the quotes, um, is complicated. So let's talk about number four. And when we look at four, let's keep in mind this idea of lemons and lemonade, right? So give me a second here. All right, so number four, say not I was once fortunate. A fortunate man is fortunate under all changes, right? So this is, I think, let, let's for a moment interpret this. This is Marcus Aurelius writing to himself. We always keep that in mind, I think. So he's encouraging himself to not, let's say, be swayed by an unfortunate event here, right? He's trying to encourage himself to always see that even to be alive is, is a privilege, Right. That there's always something to feel like, let's say, grateful for or something to feel fortunate for. And I love to keep in mind that he's writing to encourage himself to lead a stress free, anxiety free life of service to others. Right. So as the emperor of Rome and as a stoic. These journals, I think we see the philosophy and we really get to see somebody forming themselves. Right. So this to me, I, I would imagine he wrote this after having a rough meeting or a rough morning where he got some bad news. And, you know, his plans had to change and he wants to encourage himself to not characterize himself in a way that would ultimately not benefit him. Right. To say I was once fortunate implies that right now I'm unlucky. Well, if you always think you're unlucky, you might start looking at the world like in a very negative way. Right. Quite, quite clearly. Right. Whereas if you keep in mind, you know, I'm lucky and then you work to unpack and highlight and clearly articulate the ways in which you are fortunate, you start feeling grateful and your disposition is more positive. Um, so I think four works with the idea quite nicely of lemons and lemonade and making the best out of situations, right? And maybe we could argue that that's somewhat of a naive perspective, but I think working from the stoic perspective, it's, they want us to see, right, that we have to work to at least fortify ourselves, our inner fortresses, right? In the face of an unpredictable universe where things are out of our control, right? So to see ourselves as fortunate is to kind of maybe guard ourselves against becoming pessimistic. And then we also, number four for two and three. So let's see what we have in number for number four, right? In number three. Pleasure, unless it has been kept within bounds, tends to rush headlong into the abyss of sorrow, right? So this to me is about balance. Right. And if we're talking about coping with stress and anxiety and worry, um, among other things, right, um, we need to learn how to control our pleasures so they don't control us. And I think a, a really good example of this from a, you know, maybe an overly simplistic perspective is 
it might be pleasant to drink some wine, right? It is. To drink too much wine, though, you're going to feel sick the next day, right? So that's sort of what this is about. And we can, you know, wine is just one simple example, as I said. But it really is about keeping things balanced to avoid suffering. Because even pleasure, that is pleasurable, not suffering, right? If we don't learn how to deal with pleasure well, it will lead into suffering, is what Seneca is trying to say. And that's from a Stoic philosopher, right? Even the Epicureans, who um, their whole philosophy, as we'll see, ultimately revolves around pleasure. Well, they want us to focus on certain pleasures, the pleasures of existing, right? So many meditative practices involve focusing on our breathing, because to breathe is really to exist. So the Epicureans had sort of, let's say, um, a hierarchy of pleasures that were really important. So what, what, I, what I mean by that is it was important to see them as um, ranked in a way, right? So the pleasures we should focus on, as I said, the most for the Epicureans were the simple pleasures of existing. And we could even work to define what it meant to be, you know, for those pleasures to be simple. Well, it's breathing, right? We could say those are the pleasures that are both natural and necessary eating, drinking water, right? So by eating, also eating things that are healthy, that will sustain us, right? Um, so not just eating for the, the, the sheer sake of eating, right? Or like eating to excess, for example, right? Um, so the level one pleasures are the ones that we should prize the most. And again, they're natural and necessary. The level two pleasures, right, are natural, but they're not necessary. And the level three pleasures are not natural and they are also not necessary. So if we spend our whole lives, let's say, trying to be famous, which would be a level three pleasure, it's not really natural, it's not necessary, we're going to run into some problems. We're going to run into some sorrow. So we have to learn in order to cope with things and not make our own suffering how to deal with pleasures, right? So there's sort of a stoic pathway to that and the Epicurean pathway, which I was just sort of uh, characterizing, right? So we have to learn how to organize our pleasures and where our focus should go is very important in regards to not turning pleasures into sorrows. Um, and I think, again, eliminating certain pleasures too will also keep us from suffering. So when you look at number one, for example, add statues, paintings, and whatever any art has derived for the luxury, you will only learn from such things to crave still. So the idea from Seneca here is like, again, a little bit on balance, but also an acknowledgement that, for example, materialism, if you're obsessed with just you know acquiring luxury goods, that's not really going to cause anything positive if it's an obsession. It'll just perpetuate itself, right? So I think this is really useful for a modern understanding of uh, pleasures and sorrow, right? And then a lot of what we have being offered to us in the rest of these things involves imagination, right? Because we talked about anxiety, once again, being something that's driven towards the future. So it's imaginary, right? So let's see what we have here in regards to um, imagination, right? My favorite quote here, really in, the, in these two sections entirely, is we suffer more in imagination than in reality. So that's number five in section three, right? It's a beautiful idea. How negative is your imagination? How positive is your imagination of the future? So I think someone who's anxious will just be leaning more towards that negative side. And as we'll see from a couple of readings, and the homework reading I think addresses this to an extent, right? Anxiety is a natural part of being a person. So the idea shouldn't be, I, I never, I, I want to work to never be anxious. It's not really possible, right? We're going to have some anxiety in life. It's a natural part of being a person. The question might be, and I like even, obviously being exact with this, 
exactly this isn't really possible. But I like the idea of at least trying to figure this out to some degree, right? What percentage of our imaginations on a daily basis is negative and what percentage is positive, right? And then let's sit with those negative imaginations, right? Those negative moments of imagination. Let's even call them like these negative narratives of the self and world that are, again, projected to the future. Let's examine them. Where could they be coming from? Where could these fearful notions of the future be coming from? What external voices, what external events, what interpretations of ours populate these narratives, right? And then also from a very practical standpoint, how can we maybe make sure we spend 10 minutes in the morning, five minutes in the morning, maybe with a self-writing practice, cultivating healthier images of the future, right? Even a to-do list, is an image of the future. So maybe scheduling ourselves, giving ourselves more time to think about the meaning behind our tasks, maybe that'll alleviate some anxiety. That's positive planning of the future versus negative planning of the future. Right, so all these, again, we're seeing the, the content and the cup, right? So uh, Seneca is saying we suffer more often in imagination than reality, that's water, right? That's a philosophical idea. He's letting us know, or maybe suggesting that we do this. Now we have to use the techniques and the tools to grapple with that suffering, the imaginary suffering that is our anxiety, anxiety, right? So I love that quote. And there's another that I think also pairs that really well, right? Number six in number three, you will suffer soon enough when it arrives. So look forward meanwhile to better things. So this is a little bit contradictory to some other stoic ideas. Right, so the Stoics, I think, ultimately want us to have a positive view of the future, but a part of that, right, so we have two parts to it, right? It's cultivating a self and it's perceiving. So again, we, of course, we perceive ourselves, but also we perceive the external world and we perceive certain realities, right? So we're going to talk about this throughout this, the summer. It sounds a little bit morose, but one of the most powerful parts of Stoicism, in my opinion, is the concept of memento mori which means and translates to remember that you're mortal. And also it obviously applies to everyone. All humans are mortal. So for the Stoics, we shouldn't run from this fact. And different schools of philosophy agree and disagree with this idea. So of course we as individuals will do the same, right? We could agree or disagree. But just to make a brief argument for this, and again, I mean brief because we'll return to it at least once or twice more. But this is a pathway potentially, I think, to decreasing our anxiety. Right. One, we realize the future is not promised. We do not know with um, a sense of certainty when our lives will end. Right. So that lack of certainty for the Stoics is something we should confront. Right. So we should be less anxious about a future for a number of reasons. Right. One, when it's not promised, we become more grateful for the moment. That alleviates anxiety, right? Gratitude for the moment grounds us in the now, has us thinking less about the future. That in and of itself, right? Because a part of anxiety, again, involves looking to the future and then that future perspective is negative. So one way we can decrease our anxiety is by looking more at the present moment. So memento mori should ground us, right? We see, okay, I have an expiration date. I don't know when that is. Let me get the most out of life right now. Let me take control of today, the only thing that's in front of me. And then we become busy with that work. Our anxiety should 
decrease, right? In addition to that, when we're having these anxious narratives in our minds, we're creating this anxiety, we're creating this fear, right? Memento Mori creates, I think, and this is maybe going back to an earlier point we made, right? Should give us the courage to dismiss a lot of our anxieties. Because the idea also behind it is, oh, I'm not gonna be here forever. Am I really gonna spend my time worrying about this bullshit? That's what I do to myself. I'm a big proponent and supporter of memento mori, right? Because for me, when I'm anxious and I tell myself, I'm not here forever, am I really gonna spend my time not even spending my time, right? Because I'm, I'm really not even respecting my time. When we're anxious, we're not respecting the moment. Our gaze is drifting, is drifted away from the moment. We're ruining our own sense of happiness in the moment by not focusing on it. We have a whole chapter on living in the moment that pairs really nicely with this as well, right? Because anxiety, again, you're taking yourself out of the moment. So memento mori should ground us. Not only should it ground us, it should encourage us. I'm running out of time. Okay, this is a bad analogy, but if you have milk and you notice it has an expiration date, you don't wanna waste that milk, what are you gonna do? You're gonna drink it faster, right? Because it would be a pain, it would be a waste to throw away some milk. That's annoying, right? I'm gonna drink this, right? I'll just have some cereal, I'll, I'll make it work, okay? So that's the same thing with life, right? Another point with this, and it, this goes back to grounding us to act in the moment, which again, fights anxiety really nicely, I think. If you're going on vacation and you have to give somebody a gift and it's like ceramic or something, right? And you're packing your suitcase, you wrap that gift and you're like, you're nervous about it, right? You don't pack a hoodie the same way you pack a gift for somebody that's fragile. Why? Because you care for it and you know it might break. If you think you're gonna live forever, right? Instead of the Stoics saying, no, you have to keep in mind, Epictetus says every day, remind yourself of your own mortality, right? That should, that should encourage us to take care of life in a more effective way, right? It becomes that gift instead of the hoodie. Right, if, if it's something fragile, we need to take care of it. Well, what is it? Our time. What is it? Our inner disposition. How we feel, how we think. What is it? Our impact, the way we serve others. That's our whole life. We can maybe say it's the way we work, the way we love, right? Other examples. All of that though involves living and living happens in the moment. Not during the party you're nervous about a week from now. Not during the work presentation, right? So there's a lot of different pathways to alleviate anxiety um, that connect to this idea of memento mori, right? And I apologize if I'm, if I'm bouncing around points here, so I'll do my best just to summarize a couple points, right? Memento mori gets us taking action in the moment. That alleviates anxiety. You're out of the future thinking and you're engaging with the moment, right? It also should make anxieties and these things that we make for ourselves feel and look smaller. In the face of our own mortality, we can't worry about this stuff. Right, and again, we're gonna unpack this idea even more. In addition to that, we're no longer running from the inevitables of life. We're preparing ourselves for them. That becomes useful during times of hardship. Right, that sort of steel sharpened steel notion. Right, we face that hard fact of life and then all of a sudden it becomes less hard. Why? Because we've become tougher. Right, because again, we're not running, we're confronting this fact of life that can seem to be unpleasant. And we could even examine that, right? 
we're going to, we already talked about Socrates this week, right? He wasn't too concerned about death. He kind of had this notion again, it was a nap, no big deal, like an eternal nap, or it was Hades, I'll have a good time there, right? So the idea for the Stoics is that, you know, we're reevaluating not only ourselves, but we're reevaluating these externals a lot. That's big for on coping as well, right? Which we'll see um, in one of the homework assignments specifically, right? Sometimes the way to cope with something is to change the way we see it. Other ways of coping might be to change the way we see ourselves, right? Both of these things can be pathways to not fearing the future as much. They can be pathways to not worrying about what's happening in the moment as much. So we either have to make ourselves bigger, right? Or we have to make the thing smaller, right? And hopefully both of those things, we should try to make those grounded in truth, make those grounded in justice, make those grounded in confidence, right? So those are virtues you want to cultivate, all of which fight anxiety as well, among others, right? So let me quickly get to the chat again. Number five, Carmelo, from two or from three? Well, I already did five from three, right? So oh, you're saying hold grudges. Okay, so yeah, you're, you're talking about five from two. All right, so section two, number five. The most complete revenge is to not imitate the aggressor. So what does this mean? Well, it doesn't mean don't respond, in my opinion, right? Because he's, he's not saying the, the, most, um, the most effective revenge or the best revenge is to do nothing. The idea of imitate, I think, is the key idea here. Right. So it doesn't mean that we shouldn't at times, let's say, again, correct others or guide others to different understandings or even, you know, we could argue that there might be a form of righteous anger. Right. Maybe we could say we should be angered by certain things and respond to that, but we should avoid imitating. And Carmelo's point about holding grudges, I think, does go to this you know, work with this pretty nicely. Right. To imitate the aggressor is, again, I think we can hear this. In Socrates, once again, in Crito, we talked about, right, don't meet injustice with injustice. We could talk about, you know, the long history of nonviolent resistance, right? So you're not imitating. And again, we could challenge this. Do we agree or disagree? For Marcus Aurelius, I think, you know, quite clearly here, he's trying to encourage us to respond differently. Because I think that that, you know, again, for me, I try to apply it to everyday life situations. More often than not, I think that's a part of the let's say the, the main goal of the course, right? How we can flourish and thrive on a daily basis. So I think about this in regards to coping because again, in an argument with a loved one, to work to be the calmer person usually serves what is hopefully the shared purpose of both people involved, right? Which is to continue a loving relationship, right? So to imitate the aggressor in that circumstance versus defusing the situation, it's the opposite of coping, right? It's gonna cause, likely cause more suffering. And that's not always the case either, right? Sometimes you have to be, let's say, stern with somebody or, um, again, I don't like the word aggressor or aggressive necessarily in this context, but let's just use it for a moment for argument's sake, right? Sometimes you have to meet aggression with aggression and that will create a healthier scenario, of course. But again, I think generally speaking, from my experience in relationships, it makes more sense to not imitate the aggressor. Right, especially if they're doing something that is wrong, 
right? What, what, the big idea here too for Marcus Aurelius uh, and for the Stoics too is that we find a lot of, let's say what our happiness might be through virtue, like a virtuous life is a good life. So let's say someone lies to you, lying back is not what we should try to do, right? Let's say somebody, um, again, insults you. Well, insulting them back, especially if the, you know, again, we're drawing a difference here between constructive criticism and, you know, and an insult, right? Um, that damages your personhood. That damages your virtue, right? So to respond virtuously in the face of someone who's not behaving virtuously, I think is also what he means by this, right? Because you don't want to cause, we should suffer, right, within ourselves. We should maybe feel a sense that we've done, I mean, not maybe, we, I think we should work to cultivate healthy senses of when we're doing something wrong, right? Or doing something that isn't virtuous. So we damage our own virtue um, when we respond or imitate someone who's not being virtuous. We don't wanna do that, that's really important. And that's one of the few things, perhaps, you know, at least for Stoics, they I think encourage us to believe that we can control our own virtue, right? So these are also kind of different considerations, I think. Um, in regards to interpret, interpreting that one specifically. Um, let's see what else we have in the chat. Okay, we covered some ideas from the chat. It's not a bad opening discussion. Thank you all. Would anyone else like to call our attention to anything else? So for number two, right, I just caught this. And again, for these group discussions, they're never gonna be entirely exhaustive. Um, which is why I keep asking if there's anything else you wanna cover. but. Number two, check your habits, right? We are in the habit of exaggeration or imagining or anticipating sorrow. That's anxiety, right? So if you would characterize yourself as an anxious person, so let's say, again, we all have anxiety, we all do, right? But maybe you wouldn't characterize yourself as an anxious person because a lot of your thinking about the future might be positive. That's a great way to be, and that might be the case for a lot of us, right? It might be the case also that a lot of us would say, no, I'm, I would say I'm an anxious person. Well, that's maybe because we have to just change our habits. So if we know, for example, and let's not say we know, let's say for the argument, for the sake of this argument, again, we are confident that there's a certain level of anxiety we're all going to deal with, but that doesn't necessarily make us anxious people. So let's say we have to reach a certain level of anxiety in order to say, yeah, I'm anxious, right? Let's say it's just a random number, right? Let's say 40% of our time or more, if our feelings of the future are negative, you'll, you'll be willing to say, or you're, you'll offer the idea that, yeah, I'm an anxious person, right? Well, Okay. It's not then about eliminating it, as I said earlier, but how do we maybe get on the other side of 40%? That I think can come through an examination of our habitual ways of thinking and feeling and acting um, on a daily basis and thinking, especially with thinking or thinking about how we think about the future and the feelings we have, that's how we'll tackle anxiety, right? Habitually is the key element there. So even introducing, I think, and this is goes back, you know, going back to practices, even introducing a daily practice where you write a positive image of your future self, where you write a positive outcome from the event that you're anxious about, right, can be helpful in integrating a new habit that tilts the scale to make you a less anxious person, right? So these are things we want to think about. Um, and on that note, let's get into what we read for homework, because obviously what we read for homework is very much, I mean, it's literally called on anxiety, right? So just to get us a little bit involved here, take a moment. How did you sort of interact with this reading? I would love to hear quotes 
or um, even like, let's get some, stick with numbers a little bit, right? On a scale of one to 10, how useful was this essay? 10 being, of course, okay, super useful, one being get rid of it. So it's actually also very helpful to me because I'm always changing this document like between each semester. So if something like gets a two, like, you know, gets a lot of twos and threes, I'll remove it. Um, but if it's you know ranking well, I'll, I'll continue to use it. So let's take a minute here, and I want to of course highlight some points for us. But again, quotes from the reading, and at least let's get a ranking. All right. So I'll give us five minutes here to refresh our memories before I highlight some of the key points for me. And thank you all for participating. This has been good so far.
Okay, so we got some comments in the chat, and thank you. And of course, I'd love to hear from other people as well. And uh, yeah, let's get into this reading. So it's on anxiety. It's coming from the School of Life, which is, um, again, kind of founded by Alain de Bouton, another philosopher that we have uh, some of his specific work in this book as well. And let's start off with a point. Carmelo and Saul made some great points. And so I think it starts off with your point, right? It's never truly banished. It meaning, of course, anxiety. It's a part of what it means to be human, as I've said, right? Debutan goes on to basically talk about how we're kind of like, you know, spending a lot of our time being anxious, right? What we're really up against is anxiety, excuse me, to quote the reading, as a permanent feature of life. Something irrevocable, existential, dogged, and responsible for ruining a dominant share of our brief time on earth. So like we had before, right, this idea of percentages. We try to, you know, we try to eliminate, eliminate it. Okay, well, maybe that's not the right conversation. Maybe we're setting the bar too high. And we'll, we'll talk about more books, uh, more readings from the School of Life too. And he eventually talks about the idea that we are even anxious about being anxious, right? So maybe we just have to lower the bar to actually make any progress here. So the idea of ruining a dominant share, maybe it doesn't have to ruin a dominant share, it just ruin a partial share, right? For lack of a better way of putting it, maybe. So the first thing he does with this essay that I really enjoy, as I put in the chat with, uh, to respond to Saul too, is all right, here are the four things we tend to think will decrease our anxiety. Travel, beauty, status, and love, right? We would be calm if this, you know, if this or that happened in regards to these four things, right? So he characterizes a vacation, right? He talks about, you know, meeting the right person. You're going to find a way to be anxious on vacation. You're going to find a way to be anxious in the relationship, right? If we don't address the self, right? If we don't work within ourselves, as we've been doing already in this class, to engage with our past, our present, and with anxiety, all three, right? And our future, of course, to just learn how to calm down, to learn how to, once again, not rely on these things, but instead to have systems within ourselves. The new job will bring anxiety with it. The new status will bring anxiety with it, okay? So we have to maybe stop relying on these things as let's say ineffective lifeboats, right? They're all gonna fall short is what he's saying here. And I think this is great because maybe again, for our own personal use, we can map, right? So where am I maybe thinking I'm gonna get some, some tranquility? And how am I using that as an excuse, perhaps, to not confront my own daily, um, let's say, experiences and feelings and thinking, right? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to keep up with the chat here. Yeah, and so Naya, literally, that's a beautiful point, and that he, we're going to talk about that exactly. That's a really powerful word, acceptance. Right, acceptance. And before I forget, I just I listen to YouTube on just, you know a lot of stuff on YouTube sometimes. And I, have, I found this great quote that I want to share with you all that really speaks to today's lesson, right? So it's an Arabic proverb, and it's the stone which cannot be lifted should be kissed, right? And this really is a wonderful quote. I think it connects nicely also to Stoicism, the idea of amor fati, right? So we have a memento mori, kind of Latin idea, and then we have amor fati, which is similar, right? Which is actually Nietzsche's characterization of the perspective from that school of thinking, right? Um, from the ancient, some of the ancient uh, perspectives. So basically what Amor Fati means is, in a, in a sort of a literal translation, quote, quote air quotes literal, I'm not good at that really, um, like loving one's fate. So to love what has happened, to not want to go into the past and change things, right? So I think we could also apply it 
to whatever is occurring because whatever is occurring if we can see it more or less is the past right so we, we talked about a little bit i think i'm not sure if it was my other class i apologize if it, if it was but just to briefly talk about this like the greeks had a lot of different conceptions of time so chronos was like mathematical time because that's just moments passing right so not that much fun um or for me interesting i can't do math but the other type of time or one other type that i think is very interesting and in, pertains to this nicely is kairos right so kairos was more about our consciousness or let's even say our sense of time our sensibility our ability to perceive and also with kairos to take correct action in the moment right so the idea behind memento mori amor fati too is for me connects this idea of how we perceive time and to a large extent right because what is life it's ultimately tied to time in, the, in some very meaningful ways, right? We take, again, we take action only in one time, the present, right? So the ideas here, I think, <clears throat> uh, the idea of acceptance, right? Things are occurring in front of us. If they are, like this proverb says, if they are immovable, if they are irrevocable, if they, for example, are out of our control, we have to learn how to relate to these things. So if our anxiety is something that is inescapable, is something that is just sort of a staple of our existence, we might just try to learn how to accept it. If there was an event in our past, a part of what we're gonna see with the other essays too is that we have to accept that they happen. We should not ignore them, right? And I think the idea of, again, you know, loving and accepting, these are kind of similar ideas, right? Maybe it's aspirational to love what has happened to us. I think that's a fair idea. By aspirational, I mean, um, there are some things that are just terrible. Maybe we should not work to love them, right? Um, I think, again, we can tinker with these ideas. Maybe we should work to accept, and it doesn't have to even necessarily be, let's say, an articulated positive acceptance. But to deny for the Stoics, and I think with Amor Fati too as a part of that world, um, to deny what happened to us, or again, maybe to be to use our language of our conversation today, to be overly dismissive of what has happened to us, even if it was horrible, might actually damage us, right? So a part of what we might talk about, you know, in a, let's say in psychotherapy, just for a moment, right, would be you have to unpack these negative things. You have to work to describe, characterize, detail the, the negative events of our lives, because to not do that might be to plague us, right? We might be plaguing ourselves. We might be causing ourselves in the moment to have negative feelings. Then of course, anxiety again, we might be then causing ourselves to have negative feelings towards the future, right? So let me just run through an example here about why Amor Fati might be something, again, we can work with the idea of love, right? But at least acceptance, and this is what Debutan is suggesting in this essay, right? One of the key sort of ways to deal with anxiety for him is acceptance. If you never, just for one example, right? And we have a whole chapter on relationships and love. If you never go back to that relationship, where let's say somebody lied to you, right? You, you ignore it, you deny it, you do not accept it, which is maybe even to say you don't have a full acceptance because you've never really come to cultivate um, an extensive knowledge, right? He's gonna say that detailing things, or at the very least seeing them clearly is gonna be helpful. Again, you're not gonna sign up to, to fight somebody or box somebody or wrestle them and then put a blindfold on. You're not gonna do that. Right, so you have to work to characterize these things, and a part of that is through accepting that they happen. Right, so if you, for example, never really understand or come to characterize a, a past relationship where someone lied to you, I think it's like it's more likely the case 
that you're going to be anxious for the rest of your life about somebody lying to you in a relationship. Right, one of the key words we're going to see in the essay on bears is localize. Describe the time somebody lied to you and leave it there. We have to accept what has occurred in order to do that. And then I think a part of the way, again, this is maybe admittedly a bit of a stretch, right? But there's growth there. There's growth there for you that will then help you meet the right person or meet somebody who you are compatible with, let's say, if you don't believe in the idea of the right person, which is a very arguable point, obviously. Um, but let's just talk about general compatibility, right? And let's be clear, this is romantic and also friendships, let's say. Um, there's growth there for you because now you're more free of that circumstance. It's no longer controlling you because at the very least you accepted it, you confronted it, you stopped running from it, right? You took control over that narrative. There's power there, right? So moving forward, not only are you growing because of that encounter, but it's going to allow you to, to grow and flourish with someone else. It's going to allow you to hopefully offer them growth in a way that in the past, if you were still anxious about being lied to, you would not even perhaps be open to having such a profound relationship, again, friendship or, or romantic relationship. So now you're offering growth to the world. Growth is a huge part of love. Right, Thich Nhat Hanh, Zen Buddhist, we're going to talk a lot about him this summer, said that you know when love stops growing, it starts dying. So maybe Amor Fati is more about this notion of if we accept what has occurred and we stop trying to change what has occurred, but instead work to understand what has occurred so we can work to change ourselves in positive ways, that's a part of love. Right, so we can work with the phrasing of it, I think, and talk about love and change and how they might connect, right? And the whole point of the class too, you know, philosophy as the art of thriving. A huge part of the art of thriving is acceptance and growth and love, right? So again, the word philosophy itself is the love of wisdom. Wisdom should help us love ourselves and love others and love the world, right? So all these things I think kind of coalesce or come together pretty nicely, right? An anxious person has, I think difficulty in relationships with themselves and relationships with others that we want to be characterized by love. Anxiety kind of suffocates that love, right? So let's even go on to talk about the, the essay a little more specifically here. Daniel, I get to that in a minute. That's a great question, right? Let me just get a little bit back to the essay, but I will not, I will not not talk about that because it's a beautiful question, right? And even for Debutan, and here, here I am. I tell myself I'm not going to do it, and I'm just going to do it, Daniel, because it's just what it is, okay? For Debutan, it's natural that we're anxious, right? And we, we get this right on page 116. So this is a perfect connection, actually, right? He says, we are the descendants of anxious people. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? He says right here, right, on 116, why are we anxious? So he talks about anxiety, natural part of life. We have to, again, realize this for him. Then, okay, stop trying to escape it in these four ways. You're going to be anxious on vacation. You're going to be anxious in the relationship. The new status at work is going to, you know, if you're, if you're habitually programmed to find something to be anxious about, you'll be anxious about it. So then he's talking about, okay, why are we anxious? And one of those points connects, I think, Daniel, to yours nicely, and I'll do a little elaboration, right? So one, just to make sure we give uh, enough talk about Debutan's or School of Life's point, right? It's a fundamental state of our way of being for well-founded reasons. One, we are intensely vulnerable physical beings. We know we can get sick. We know our bones break. We know we're mortal, right? So this might apply to people who, let's say, um, 
who always think they're going to be sick, right? That's an excessive version of this. But he's saying that's only excessive because it's normal to a large extent to acknowledge that we're fragile because, in fact, we are. We're susceptible to diseases and things, right? So, again, it's about balance and acknowledgement and acceptance. Um, so let's keep going here, right? We can imagine so much more than what we have. And I'm sorry. We can imagine so much more than we have and live in mobile-driven, mediatized societies where envy and restlessness will be a constant. Earlier in our bibliotherapy, we didn't highlight it, but one of the things of three that we should really avoid is jealousy. Now, he's talking about the media here. We can talk about social media. And once again, we can really, I think, make really super clear and practical philosophical connections to thrive just with this alone, right? If you feel envy and if you feel restlessness as a result of your engagements with the media, or like for, for example, social media, just spend your time differently. And that's an oversimplification, right? But think about what he's saying here. He's saying one roadmap to leading a more anxious life is envy and restlessness through imagination and engagement with our society, right? Our, let's say our, our modern societies, although this has existed for thousands of years, right? Obviously, Epictetus, Seneca, thousands of years ago were saying, we're anxious people. People are anxious, it's a problem, right? So debutants may be adding another element to it that I think is very relevant, because maybe now, we, I think you know, there's some evidence to suggest that we're more anxious now than we've ever been, right? And a part of that is access to, to media and social media, right? So if this is something that affects you, you might have to, once again, examine your actions. Do you start your day going on your phone? Do you start your day going on Instagram? Maybe change that. How many hours a day? Get that screen time thing, right? There's an app that limits your screen time. It kind of shows up like a, an hourglass, but it's also like you have a, an option to reject it and keep going. So, but still, you can even have an app that does that or an app that will monitor your time for you so you can see, well, I spent five hours, three days in a row on social media, How and I'm anxious right now, hmm. right? We need to have these things. So again, back to our practices chapter for a minute, we have to heighten our awareness of our actions and our thoughts and our feelings. So that's what I think this at least illuminates for me. If we wanna be less anxious, we might wanna see how our social media habits are affecting our feelings of envy and restlessness, right? Just, just saying. Again, these are wonderful suggestions from him, right? Because we are, and this is to Daniel's point, right? Because we are the descendants of the great warriors of the species, okay? Anxiety is one of the reasons, to Daniel's point, that we're here. Our literal ancestors might have been the people who were anxious enough to take sound action that as he, he's listing some really interesting things here, being torn apart by wild animals, right? Um, I think, you know, even just on that note, right? We have like lights now. But thousands of years ago without fire, that wasn't, you know how anxious people must have, I mean, that must have been anxiety inducing too, right? Pre-fire, pre, pre it's night, you can't see shit. Like, like think about what he's saying here. It's like, you had to be anxious to survive in those environments, right? So it's even maybe we could say is wired into our DNA. And I'll even make this even more practical, right? Maybe the people who raised you in a literal sense, right, were anxious people. That's very possible too, right? So we, we can sort of map to some environmental factors. Um, we can map in the case that he's saying with the descendants, right, to some, let's say, um, you know, factors from evolution perhaps, right? Um, and that could even mean like in the way that we've established technologies that should decrease our anxiety and then some technologies will increase our anxiety, right? So it's a very interesting point he raises here. 
about kind of the growth of, you know, again, the, the warriors of the species and its idea of being descendants to me has a lot of really interesting implications. Again, both a larger scale um, to Dan's point too, like it might've motivated us to get things done, which might in this sense be to like invent things, right? Like fire, I think was probably something that was invented among other reasons, of course, to like deal with the fact that we couldn't see what was going on at night, right? We needed a way to be less concerned about what would happen two hours from now, right? Um, we needed ways to create a greater sense of certainty around waking up tomorrow, um, and, and among other things too, right? So let's pause on this point to see how we could address uh, Daniel's question here, right? Um, do you think anxiety is synonymous with ambition in a way? Well, again, I do think a certain amount of anxiety one is necessary because it's just going to happen. But I do think to agree with you, yes, in a way it is synonymous. But I think we can have ambition that is paired with confidence, not with fear. Right? Which is ironic. This is weird, right? Because you need fear to be confident. Right? So again, for me, I like to ground it in the daily life. I think someone who's, let's say, ambitious but confident is just even maybe slightly less fearful than the person who's just anxious. So we can be driven by a lot of different things, right? Anxiety, we said, is a, is a future-driven um, emotion that's coupled with a sense of negativity. And that negativity usually, again, comes in one of two ways, right? One is this event or this potential future is scary. We, we might be misperceiving or creating an exaggerated image of the negativity right? And or we might be creating a non-confident image of ourselves. So usually for, for me, it might be anxiety is it's not only this event is scary, but it's scary. This event is scary and I can't deal with it. This event, event is scary. And instead of responding with, but I can handle it, I'm going to crush it. You respond with, and I'm scared of it, right? So there's a really interesting painting um, by Francisco Goya called Colossus. And it, it, as the name kind of implies, it's literally like a giant person. And there's like, he's like in the clouds, right? It's so like his abdomen is covered by clouds. And below him is a village, like a full village. And to me, that's a pathway to being less anxious too. So by that, I mean being confident, right? Being above the village to me implies being above fear of externals, right? Then the job interview, it's normal to be nervous about that to an extent but I'm not gonna let that nervousness conquer me then make me anxious, I'm above it. I'm bigger, than my, I'm bigger than that story I'm telling myself. Then you need to tell yourself a story about, about yourself, right? Which is that I'm bigger narrative. I've done interviews in the past, I'm fine. I'm prepared for this job, I'm fine. I'm qualified for this job, I'm good. I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna work out, I'm gonna feel good. I'm gonna wake up, I'm gonna put a suit on. For, this is my personal example, because sometimes I'll just wear a suit. This is maybe, this is a little bit personal, but honestly, I, if I'm having a situation in life, sometimes I'll just, I have one nice suit, I'll just wear my suit. I would, you know, visit my parents, you know, we all live within 10 minutes of each other. So I would like go home on a Sunday and I just have my suit on because I had a rough week and they'd be like, oh, did you go to church? No, I just wore it. I just need to, I'm just in a suit today because I feel bulletproof in a suit. Suits and haircuts will do this. Okay. Did I talk about haircuts already? I'm, not, okay, I'm teaching a couple of places now, but at the end of the day, this warrants repeating. After a haircut, I'm haircut confident. I'm unstoppable for two days. The next 48 hours, I'm making unreasonably confident decisions, and it's, it's a problem. 
But when you put a suit on or you get a haircut, it just, you know, it's, oh, thank you. It just happens. Walking out of the barbershop, I am literally unstoppable. So we need these types of things, these habits in our lives, right? Is what I'm trying to say. They, they also make us resilient about anxiety, right? So let me get back to Dan, Dan's question for a minute here, right? Is it absolutely synonymous? I would say no. Is there, are there moments where it might be? Yes. But no matter what, anxiety is not something we should pursue. Right? We shouldn't wake up, and I'm not saying you're saying this, right? And say, let me make myself anxious. Time is moving forward no matter what. We are mo moving forward through time no matter what. That's unstoppable. So the way we view the future, right? Again, the anxiety can trigger some ambition, but we don't want to hold on to the anxiety while being ambitious, right? The motivations we return to most frequently are very important. So I would not recommend being or let's say I would not recommend trying to perpetuate being motivated by anxiety or even motivated by anger, right? So the anger comes up also in this chapter on coping, or usually we have to cope with anger, but I've done this in the past too, and I know other people who do this. Sometimes we start thinking of anger as a positive motivator for ambition, right? Can it be at moments? Yes. But if we rely on anger for motivation, we will become angry people. You do not want that. And then you're starting to associate anger with a positive thing. I'm going to prove this person wrong. Let me do the good thing of, let's say, going to school. Let me do the good thing of, let's say, going to the gym, right? Or getting a new job. Wait a minute. Seneca tells us, right, the most sustainable motivation is love. Like love is a positive thing, generally, right? Does love also come with suffering? Of course, right? But again, if we're working to direct our, our ship a little bit, right, using a ship metaphor, right? Life is rocky. Life will throw a wave at us. That's anxiety, right? Again, naturally that'll happen. We want to work with the wave. We don't want to make waves that get in our way. We want to make waves that help us, right? So the idea that it's synonymous, I would say no. It, it, again, it, it's a part of it maybe. They're, they're definitely different things, right? Because anxiety doesn't necessarily equal ambition. It could just equal the opposite, right? Anxiety could paralyze us. It can make us afraid to try. The ambitious person is not afraid to try. The ambitious person is not paralyzed. Well, let's say the person who's ambitious and they act that out, right? Um, it can be a slight motivator, I would say. I think that's a positive aspect of, of, of my answer. But we can be ambitious as a result of other things that are healthier. Was that, help, was that helpful, Daniel? And if not, I, I can keep going for a couple minutes here. But was that at all illuminating or? Cool. Um, yeah. But I get, that's, I get your question, though, and I think it's a, it's a meaningful one. Thank you. So let's keep going here. Um, this, I think the next reason why we're anxious kind of works with the vacation very well, right? Um, visible objects and locations, tables, beaches, only symbolize calm to our eyes rather than instill it in our psyches. So that's interesting, too. And I think to a degree we could argue with this, maybe, because I think water, I think bodies of water have a natural maybe proclivity for or capacity for calming us down actually, right? Um, but then again, I think even the, the conversations we sustain um, as a result of that, that's the instilling, right? Um, this one I think is very important for college students because the progress of our careers and of our finances play themselves out within the tough-minded, competitive, destructive, random workings of an uncontained capitalist engine, right? So even just going to school with the intentions of getting a job only plays to anxiety. Right, because places that we have to compete, right? Um, 
the considerations around school may at times feel as, as if they're mainly financial and we miss once again the moment we miss the actual intrinsic value of the experience of being in school because we're anxious about the grade even writing a paper right instead of and i do this to myself i'm still a student instead of just addressing the moment the question of the paper you're nervous about the grade and that's why you don't start the first sentence right the first sentence is the hardest one to write it's anxiety you're worried about how it's going to go you're worried about the grade before you even start the paper yeah, we work to ground ourselves in the moment. We acknowledge that this is natural, okay? I'm not, I'm not abnormal for feeling this way. And then we get moving, right? We rely on our self-esteem and sense of comfort uh, on the love of people we cannot control and whose needs and hopes will never align seamlessly with our own. So this is an argument for maybe uh, developing a greater sense of self-sufficiency, Right, so the idea that if we, instead of looking to externals, which is to say other people for our self-esteem, we can work to cultivate our own sense of merit. How do we do that? Well, I would argue once again, a daily practice of how did I make progress today? And then trying to make that question positive should make us feel good about ourselves, right? How did I challenge myself today? We define all that for ourselves, right? We have to define our own challenges in life so we can cultivate this feeling of self, uh, self-satisfaction that isn't reliant on a grade from me or on a compliment from a loved one. We can and we should do that. And that alleviates anxiety, I think, in a number of ways, right? Um, so those are the reasons why. And now we get into some of the solutions, which goes back to Naya's point, right? The single most important move is acceptance. There is no need on top of everything else to be anxious that we are anxious. The mood is no sign that our lives have gone wrong, merely that we are alive. And I love the idea that he used the word mood here because moods come and go, they change, right? So even seeing, I think, and this is back to Memento Mori a little bit, we could tell ourselves, oh, this anxiety will pass. That's a relief, I think. That's relieving to a large extent, okay? We should be more careful when pursuing things we imagine will spare us anxiety. That's the first four we talked about. We can pursue them by all means, but for other reasons than fantasies of calm. And with a little less vigor, and a little more skepticism, okay? We are far from the only ones with this problem. And here's advice number two that I think is a pathway, I'm sorry, a result of that pathway of acceptance, right? We must learn to laugh about our anxieties. Laughter being the exuberant expression of relief when a hitherto private agony is given a well-crafted social formulation in a joke. So I think what he's saying here is literally joke about your anxieties, like with people, but also I think we can learn to literally within ourselves laugh at our anxieties and try to smile at them, right? And then he goes on to provide us what I think are some pretty interesting kind of comedic, um, like a cartoons in a way, right? And I think too, when we're talking about the sense of meditation as inner dialogue, let's say anxiety rises up within us without our control, which I think is a pretty interesting point, right? Maybe something, you hear a song or you, you see something or you, you're reminded of, a, of something and you're just, you just, you quickly go from thinking to feeling anxious, right? How do we cultivate a healthy response to that? Well, he's saying when we, again, accept it, and then we go into laughing about it. And I think especially if it's one that we've confronted before, as a lot of anxieties person that I deal with are familiar, it's rare that I get a new thing to be anxious about. If it's seemingly new, it usually connects to the same one or two things, right? So at this point, and I've been grappling this myself, I think this is actually sort of possible, right? Um, and by sort of, I mean it might not work every time, but I think we can try to habituate this. The, the idea that, oh, you again, is sort of the question, and we'll confront this another essay too from him or from the School of Life, where it's like, we can have that, you know, it's almost like an uncle you don't really like who's just gonna be at the party, 
you know, like he's going to try to talk to you and like you're going to have to deal with it and you can't go off because you're at a party. So it's like you have to just learn how to deal with this person. This is a little personal, but whatever. You have to learn how to deal with this person calmly and they shouldn't ruin the party for you. And what you definitely shouldn't be doing is driving to the party, planning an argument with this person. You ever do that? Ever plan an argument with somebody at a party and they don't even show up? And you're like, okay, I just wasted 40 minutes in the car planning a fight with this person. These are great metaphors for life. Again, metaphors for how we can deal with ourselves. If you know, for example, when, okay, I have to go to this class, I'm gonna be a little bit worried about whatever, or I, you know, I have to do this or that or whatever. We know ourselves. And maybe, again, a part of this work is getting to know ourselves even more, and back to triggers maybe. So for me, I know, for example, when I'm tired, if I don't get good sleep, I know I'm gonna be more anxious that day. So I can look at those thoughts from a different perspective. From Let's say I can look at them with a different sense of distance and a different sense of levity, right? Which is to say, this is laughable because I know this is just the tiredness talking, right? So I think that's a part of it too. I'm not going to fight with it. I'm just going to accept it. All right, I'm a little tired. I'm going to have these thoughts. That's acceptance. All right, they're not going to ruin my day, but they're going to be there probably. So I'm going to laugh at it. Same thing with the uncle, right? He's going to be there. I'm going to try to keep it moving. I'm not going to sit with him too long. Same thing with thoughts, right? I don't have to sit with this thought for too long. I don't have to ask it too many questions or engage with it and give it power. I just have to learn how to laugh and smile and okay, I'll see you later. Um, or I think my mom's calling me, you know, and like my mom calling me is another idea, is another task, is another thought, right? So that's how we have to deal with these things, I think. And let's go on, right? I think these cartoons are pretty interesting. Um, I'm not to necessarily elaborate too much on these, right? But again, too much desire will cause us anxiety. Okay, um, we have to learn once again to control those and have the right types of pleasures. We can't let ourselves get exaggerated, right? I use the idea of a boat before. Here we have the example, you know, don't drown in a glass of water. Well, don't, which is to say, don't exaggerate or don't get in the habit of exaggerating things. Not everything is awful. Anxiety is hugely connected to that idea, right? It's not just that the party might be a little bit boring or awkward. We start making it awful, right? Well, catch that narrative. Right? Use evidence. Well, I've gone to parties before. They were, you know, rarely were they awful. They were just kind of boring. So why am I exaggerating this now? Right? Anxiety also, when we get into like more of a scientific way of existing, like, okay, well, what exactly is my evidence for this? Sometimes we have no evidence or we have very little evidence. Right? And even am I interpreting this evidence correctly? When we turn to the evidence, you know, a lot of our anxieties will also kind of, uh, let's say, decrease, I think, in intensity. Um, and that's that for that uh, for that essay. Any closing thoughts? Any other questions or again, so what do we get out of this? We learned a little bit about the, the let's say the topographical nature. We, we map anxiety. Here's where it comes from. And we went through that pretty, I think, extensively, right? Then we talks about again, it's a natural part of life. Don't try to escape it with these main things that our culture has seemed to craft around escaping it. It's not gonna work. What we really have to do, once again, is learn to accept the anxieties, maybe understand them a little bit more, right? Understand their, their sort of their contours, if you will, the way that they you know, um, rise up in us, what might trigger them, how we engage with them, how can we do that healthier, right? Um, and then again, leading from acceptance into laughter as a way of coping with them, back to the title of the chapter on coping, is much healthier, especially those that are frequent, that are just kind of not pointing us anywhere useful, right? So to Daniel's question too, like there might be some anxieties that actually are useful for us. 
Okay, and this leads me to my three main questions. Another, um, let's say, tool for coping with anxiety. I have three questions that I use that I think are really useful um, that connect to what I was saying a moment ago. Right? Is this real? What's well, three to four questions? Right? Is this real? Slash, is this true? So, is this real? Sort of like, is it happening right now? No. The thing in my head is it happening? No. Okay. Is it true? That's more obvious, right? Like, again, kind of connects to is it real to an extent. And is it helpful, right? So if it's not helpful, why am I thinking about it? So some anxieties might be helpful. Why? I'm anxious about the test two days from now. I'm, I'm, I think I might fail it. Okay, stop, take action, study. That's a useful anxiety because it's helpful. But some anxieties are not true, they're not real, and they're not helpful. So those are the ones that we have to learn how to dismiss, right? And we dismiss them after we examine them in that way. Because if we dismiss the anxiety to study, before we ask, is it helpful, then we might not study. Then that is a missed opportunity to do something good for our future in our present, right? So to Daniel's question too, that I think is, is wonderful. Um, it, uh, again, the word synonymous, I maybe wouldn't agree with, but does anxiety help with some ambition in a way? I would say, yeah, and that's how. Once we examine it and we see that, in fact, some anxieties can be helpful. And then once we acknowledge an anxiety can be helpful, we should be able to see it one not as anxiety because at that point it's not anxiety it's a directive it's an imperative and or it's taking action right now and when we're taking action and we're focused on it we're not thinking about the future there we go right so that lens is i think a really helpful lens when it comes to working with anxiety is it real is it true is it helpful right and then again it's either no longer anxiety um and at the very least, we're actually thinking. We're not just feeling that, right? We're, we're putting it to the test, which I think can be very useful. So on that note, let's take a quick let's stay, let's take a quick seven minute break because I just want to get some water, and let's come back at eleven o'clock, and then we're going to get into a couple other readings. Okay? So excellent job so far. I'll see everybody at eleven. <laughs>